Hi everyone, welcome to Monday Match Analysis Classics. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with Alex Gruskin. He's the editor-in-chief at Craft Brackets and the host of the Great Shot Podcast. And we go over a match that means a lot to me, and quite frankly, it's a pleasure to talk about it 11 years later because it aged like fine wine. 2009 U.S. Open Final, Roger Federer versus Juan Martin Del Potro. Without further ado, Alex Gruskin. We're joined for the first time by Alex Gruskin, editor-in-chief at Craft Rackets and host of the Great Shot podcast. Alex, how are you? Thanks for coming on. Oh, it is an absolute pleasure. Nice to do a home-and-home home with someone. I feel like with sports out of the way right now, nothing to watch on television, do home-and-home home podcasts. That's the new, you know, doubleheader from baseball. That's the new, all of these different things. So it is absolutely a pleasure. How are you holding up? All is well? Uh, I'm great. Yeah, that's right. I went on your show and we did the 2001 Wimbledon semifinal between Patrick Rafter and Andre Agassi. Um, and we both had the same brilliant and completely out of the box idea to take this coronavirus halt and use it to go back and watch old matches. I mean, it's a crazy coincidence. No, I, I think we're all, all thinking, and I know we were chatting beforehand, we have mutual guests lined up, mutual uh, matches that we want to recap as well, because there are so many great matches in uh, tennis's history. That's the best part about the sport. So many great individual performances to be celebrated. And of course, great minds think alike. So honored to you know have that alongside of you. Absolutely. So we're going to get into the 2009 U.S. Open final between Federer and Del Potro. But first, uh, I want a quick origin story on on cracked rackets i mean give me a little spark notes here uh, on uh, how this started up wow i am flattered so it, it, the real question for you to flip this is am i allowed to swear or no um, no, I'm just kidding. Don't worry. I will not be swearing uh, for the story. But, you know, uh, I, you know, you and I similar aged. And so tennis for me has always been a big part of my life. And throughout it growing up, I got to see some of the greatest, if not the greatest players the sport has ever produced players like Serena Williams and Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, you all know who the great players are. And so tennis has always been a part of my life. And I think what we all learn as tennis players is that there's a huge community of tennis playing nerds uh, who all feel similarly about all these past matches who follow the week in week out day in day out grind of the tour at a similar just fanatic level uh, and so you know for me it was post-college and we're recording this I think April 17th it's about the three-year anniversary of my club tennis national championship at Michigan uh, you congratulations know, the, yeah the over under was was I going to mention that five minutes in <laughs> ten minutes in I hope we hit the under um, but uh, you know after graduating because I got to play club in college and that's not varsity but it's enough to get your fix and you know for me I as I was graduating I was like well I'm still going to need tennis in my life uh, I was still starting a real job, something outside of the field of tennis. Uh, and I was like, well, what can I do? And, you know, 2017, it was still podcast mania. It was right before everyone had a podcast, but a little bit after, you know, podcast was a niche thing. And so I figured, you know, why not give it a go? And I remember, you know, I saw a Chris Eubanks interview from the guys at Cracked Rackets, Dalton and Westoff, who, you know, similar ages to me, we grew up all watching the same things. And I was like, oh, what I wouldn't do to have a little bit of action access to guys like Chris Eubanks because I loved college tennis and I called Dalton. I managed to fool him uh, into thinking that I knew what I was talking about. And, you know, three years later, just because for all of us and yourself included, you know, tennis traditionally stuffy's the wrong word, but it's an old aged media. A lot of the figureheads at the top of the game, while 
tremendously entertaining and informative. Uh, they're not, you know, young. They're people who have been around since the 80s, since the 90s. And so we thought a youthful perspective might be something that tennis fans would appreciate. We thought in-depth analysis of, you know, the college level through the pro level on a day-by-day basis might be something people have enjoyed. Uh, jury is still out on whether they do or not, but we're still rocking and rolling, so we'll take it. Hey, I think I think you guys are doing a, a fantastic job. Uh, check them out, Cracked Rackets, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast, because that's what you're supposed to say, and uh, and also YouTube. <laughs> um, okay, I don't think that it's wise to keep this. You know, so when we were doing the 2001 semi at Wimbledon, we were trying not to spoil it. Uh, I almost don't think that's worth it here. This is 2009. It's Del Potro Feder in the U.S. Open final. I'm going to assume most people know what the outcome was. So let's not worry too much about that. And I just got to ask your gut reaction when you hear that match, the legacy of that match. What's what's the first thing that hits you? Well, I think to myself, hey, you know, I was a 14-year-old who watched this and just remember thinking, oh, someone beyond Federer can win. And it, that, for me, was the first time that 2009 series, and, you know, sorry to do this, but this is the inner host in me, you know, you go back to that season and you just have to think, that was the first thing, you know— it was just a fascinating year because now we have so many next-gen guys coming up the pipeline. Well, that season was, you know, the previous generation, the Murray, the Djokovic generation, the Delpo and Burdich generation. They were working their way up the rankings as well. Andy Murray, number two, uh, you know, in the rankings. Nadal, three. Djokovic, four. All of them 23 years old or or less. And again, for Nadal to be 23 in 2009 blows my mind but you know it's guys like that and Delpo and Sanga and Simone and Monfils they're all on the front halves of their career and when Delpo beats Federer I just remember thinking to myself oh are we about to see a new wave of a bunch of different players who are all talented like Del Potro breakthrough in the biggest moments and you know that was half of my reaction the other half is oh my god a healthy Juan Martin Del Potro was just so talented and you know i have a bunch of what ifs for you that we can run through at the end because that's that's the other thing you naturally with this match is what if naturally and uh for me this match holds a very special place in my heart because it's the first match i was live in the stands uh really first ever live tennis match and it's really been all downhill from there (laughs) (laughs) well it's interesting because one could argue, and I guess this gets into the background, and sorry if I'm jumping ahead, but, you know, Federer, I think it was like 2,200 days since he had lost at the U.S. Open. He had won six in a row and or was going for six in a row, and, you know, he had owned New York. It was his scene. It, he was always the one winning. He was always the one who the crowd embraced. And in this match, watching the replay, and I, I remember thinking this at the time as well, it definitely influenced who I was rooting for, the crowd— I'm not going to say it leaned towards Delpo, but probably for the first time ever was a 50-50 match. Okay, so here's what was going on. Yeah, give me the scoop. I was was on the scene, you know, as a young reporter taking note of of the crowd. (laughs) I'll tell you what, there was was actually way less Del Potro fans than Federer fans. The volume was 50-50, not the split. And and it was interesting because it was almost— a different kind of roar when when the Del Potro fans celebrated. It was just, 
it had a little bit more juice behind it, where Federer was more of a big Wimbledon clap almost, you know, in inside Arthur Ashe uh, Stadium. So uh, it's interesting you say that. I think the crowd actually played a factor in this match as well. But uh, let's do a little bit. Let, let's go back to kind of setting things up. The the context you mentioned, two thousand nine, crazy year, lots of iconic matches for Federer. Loses the Australian Open final to Nadal. That that match is is well known as a great quality match, but also because Federer cried afterwards. Then you go to the French Open, and Nadal loses to Robin Soderling, and Federer wins his fourth. So now he has all four. He wins the French Open 2009. Then at Wimbledon, another massive milestone. He beats Andy Roddick in the final, and now he's past Pete Sampras with 15. Federer's Federer, this was a this was a massive year for his Grand Slam success. It's a tale of two scripts as well because you mentioned it, and there are always going to be two or three, I should say, crying moments that stand out to me in tennis history. And what does that say about our sport? I don't know, but it means we all care very much. That's why we all embrace it with all of our inner being. Um, but you know, there was. Murray, when he loses Wimbledon in 2012, I'm getting closer. I cried during that moment, and it would, you know, I'll always remember that. I'll remember Chilich crying in that Wimbledon final 2017 because our first Cracked Rackets podcast was after that Wimbledon. And then there's that Australian Open. And in 2009, just for some context of where Federer was at, and sorry for the shameless plugging, I swear this will be the only time I do it, but I've been looking at some of the five-year primes for players uh, on our mini-break podcast, and you know this 09 season probably falls in the first year just outside of Roger Federer. Prime. You look at it, you know, that 06 season when he goes 92 and 5, 16 finals and 17 events, wins three of the four majors, makes the final in the other one. 07, he does the same thing. 08, you know, it's similar stuff. He ends up semifinals, finals, finals, then wins the U.S. Open. Uh, or, uh, yeah, that was 08. But then 09, you know, the, the script is kind of flipped because in that 08 uh, Wimbledon, that's obviously the Nadal match where he beats Federer dramatically 9-7 in the fifth set. And then for Nadal to come out again and beat Federer in the Australian Open, that was the first time in Roger Federer's career where it felt like he had met an equal, where it felt like maybe there may be a younger generation that will surpass him. And then, of course, he just, you know, he struggles through, I think, Indian Wells in Miami. He lost to Murray and Djokovic respectfully. He actually loses a match to Stan Wawrinka early in the season and early in their careers. That never happened. But then Federer rips off that incredible run, like you said, right? Coming into this U.S. Open, you look at where he was and what his stats were at. I think it was something crazy, like he was 32-1 and in his last, I think, six events or something. A Madrid title, French mm-hmm. Open, Wimbledon, lost Rogers Cup quarterfinals, but it was 7-6 in the third to Sanga. He wins in Cincinnati and, you know, didn't steamroll, but fairly comfortably into that U.S. Open final. Uh, so, yeah, it it was a tale of two scripts and you know, it's so funny because we are 11 years later and Roger Federer is still competing for grand slams. But again, no spoiler alert, but after this match, it had given the way this season had gone, he felt vulnerable for the first time, but coming into that U S open after the streak he had been on, it was like, okay, maybe he's not. And so that invincibility was still somewhat surrounding him at the Oh nine U S open significantly less. So afterwards, yeah, it, it was a bit of a turning point, and and he did. Now we're jumping way later. I mean, he did win the the 2010 Australian Open, 
um, which is another legacy of this match. This this almost wow that could have been the Roger Slam. He could have had four in a row uh, if he had gotten this done. First of all, I, or by the way, take the crying theme and put it in the back pocket. I'm I'm bringing that back later. <laughs> I'm I'm telling you, I'm bringing that back. Okay. But uh, I mean, Federer, you're right. He's in the crux of his dominance. He has won five straight U.S. Opens. Interestingly, because this would never happen nowadays, five different opponents. Del Potro was his sixth different opponent in the finals in as many years. So that was interesting. Um, and the head-to-head at the time was 6-0 Federer. Federer was world number one. Uh, Federer beat Del Potro straight sets in Australia, dropping just three games. But Del Potro did push him to five in Paris. This is after Nadal had lost in the semifinals. Federer had to come back from two sets to one down. Delpo is a player who had only won, uh, or excuse me, lost really one match all summer. Um, he was he was red hot, seventeen and one since Wimbledon. Del Potro won the Rogers Cup, so even though Federer was was really king at this time and did have that cloak of invincibility, Del Potro was a dangerous opponent, twenty years old at the time. Yeah, and he's a healthy Juan Martín Del Potro. There are no wrist surgeries, no torn ACLs. This is a guy who was the number three junior in the world and had played like it throughout his early pro career. Again, he was 20 years old, as you mentioned, and he had already ascended the rankings, I think, number six coming into the event, number five by, uh, you know, throughout the year, he had reached his career high number five for the first time. And as you mentioned, he had started to do well at the slams for the first time in his career as well. You look at that 09 season, starts out, you know, 08, he made the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open, continues that momentum, quarterfinals at Australia, semifinals in the French Open. You know, the Wimbledon performance wasn't great, but he immediately rebounded after that to have this incredible hardcourt summer. You throw in the fact that he was a quarterfinalist Indian Wells, semifinalist at the Miami Open. By 2009, what's crazy is that he had asserted himself already as a top 10 ATP hardcourt player. And you know, to be his size, six foot six, we all know it now, but that forehand as electric then as it is now, and just the way he puts his whole body into that momentum. And we'll talk about it throughout the duration of the match, but he's a guy who can actually line up with Federer shot for shot, firepower for firepower. He's not intimidated. He thinks he can hit uh, uh, Federer off the court. I also think it's worth mentioning uh, that in 2008, you know, Djokovic did beat Song in that Grand Slam final. And so while Federer did still have that cloak of invincibility, as we've mentioned, uh, someone had won that wasn't Federer or Nadal. Someone had broken the streak. And, of course, we didn't know what Novak Djokovic was going to become. Uh, but, you know, Murray made the final of the 08 U.S. Open, and now Delpo was making it again here. It wasn't unheard of, uh, you know, as it, as nearly as unheard of as it was when Medvedev made the final last year for a guy like Del Potro to make the final in 09. And I'm sure we'll talk about it, but the way he dusted Nadal in straight sets, fewest games Nadal's ever won in a semifinal, he was rocking and rolling. That was 6-2, 6-2, 6-2. It was the third time Del Potro had beaten Nadal that year. And, uh, I mean, that can't be neglected as the, the, the number one reason why, if you were nervous as a Federer fan, it was mostly because of what, Juan Martin had just done in the semis. Now let's get to the match. Okay, so can I, sorry to do this. Sure. This is like 
again, the inner host in me. Uh, but two, yeah, just, uh, you know, in terms of before the match, I do think it's important to note, A, in the semifinals, this was the year Federer hit the iconic yeah. tweener against Djokovic. And so, you know, that match against Djokovic was really good. I know it was a straight set win for Federer, but, you know, 7-6, seven, 7-5, seven, five, seven, five, that's, you know, against Novak Djokovic, that's a physical match. It was also held, I believe, on Sunday because there was a rain delay, and so the final got pushed back to Monday for the second year in a row. And I do remember there being a storyline at the time of, oh, is there always going to be a Monday final now? Is that something we're going to have to worry about because it was two years in a row? And of course, we're all so reactive. Um, but, you know, you, you do have to wonder physically, especially, get, you know, as we get into the match, how much did that take out of Roger Federer the night before? Yeah, that's a good point. And, uh, Federer was was looking pretty pretty spry for for most of that, but we'll get into the reasons why what went down what uh, why what went down went down. Let's start with the production though. I always like to start with the production. Yeah. This is this is CBS. We have Dick Enberg, the late great Dick Enberg, in the middle on his left, Mary Carrillo on his right, John McEnroe. Any general notes on the CBS production, who, by the way, doesn't broadcast the U.S. Open anymore as ESPN now has the rights. Yeah, so first five-set final for them since 99. They were excited about that. They had clips ready to go. I forgot that tournaments used to give away cars to the winner, the Lexus convertible shot. Always a fan of that. Um, we talked about it when we did uh, the 01 Wimbledon. That was probably McEnroe pitching a 9 out of 10, maybe a 10 out of 10 performance. This was probably a seven out of 10 because he just, he didn't, him and MC were clicking and, you know, Mary Carrillo always so great, but I feel like Mary Carrillo didn't get enough words in. And I, you know, that's again, a McEnroe theme that we don't have to touch, but I would have loved to hear a little more uh, Mary Carrillo. That being said, Dick Enberg in the box, setting the scene. At one point, he goes, you know, for those of you tuning in that aren't traditional tennis fans, Federer might be considered one of the greatest ever, so it's worthwhile to watch. I was like, really? In 09, we still had to make that little disclaimer? I don't think that's true. But it, so while McEnroe's performance diminished, having these three in the box was exceptional. Yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, we all we all missed Dick Enberg. And by the way, Carrillo and McEnroe grew up together some, you know, Queens natives, but a little bit of friction there between mm -hmm. McEnroe and Carrillo, which is uh, McEnroe. And I did further research because it came up on my last show with Amy Lundy talking about Kleisters and Serena, this very tournament, 2009 U.S. Open, where uh, they had a couple of tents back and forth. So I went back and I looked and it turns out McEnroe made the claim and let's not get into this, but McEnroe made the claim that Mary Carrillo is less qualified to call a men's match. And he said, I'm less qualified to talk a whip to talk about a women's match. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's McEnroe at his finest. Yeah. And, and Mary Carrillo didn't take too kindly to that. I don't blame her. No. Should we talk about the fact this was the turn? I mean, we don't have to, but this was the Serena gets the point penalty against Kleister's tournament. This yes. was the Melanie Udan tournament. <laughs> like that is 11 years ago. I remember that so vividly. That might be the thing I remember most about this U.S. Open, you know, outside of who ended up winning it. You know, Kleister's, of course, first mother, I think, since Gulagongs to win a slam yep. as well. But crazy 09 U.S. Open. Iconic. Iconic. Yeah. All right, we're not hitting tennis balls yet. I, we got to start with this pre-match interview. Perfect. Okay, because Juan Martín del Potro looks like he just stepped off 
of a roller coaster or he had just watched a horror movie. Was that not the vibes you were getting from Del Potro? He looked so, so terrified. It was just, he spoke maybe six words. And again, a 20-year-old Juan Martin Del Potro from Argentina that he spoke English as well as he did is something to be applauded. But no, he was nervous and you see it in the way he comes out of the gate. I believe Federer breaks him right off the bat. Uh, yeah, you could just tell he wasn't moving well. He was just, he was shanking balls. He was, he was not, and he says like three words. He's like, I have to play everything perfect, even better than he did against Nadal. And, you know, you texted me, go check that out. And I was like, this is incredible. But how about Federer's performance? That might be the peak of cocky <laughs> Federer. Federer was was smirking, grinning, smooth talking. I mean, he looked. I mean, if Del Potro had just come out of a horror movie, where did Del, where did Federer just come out of? Yeah, it's crazy. He's like Del Po's got nothing to lose, and it's like really you're going to say that about your opponent before the match? That's bold. Yeah. Yeah, Delpo even admitted it. He said, I'm a little nervous. I think that's the first thing he said. And then McEnroe commented, wow, he looked really wound up in that interview. As you said, it manifested itself right away in the first set. Federer broke at love one. By the way, the point of the match might have been in this sec in the second game of the match where, where Federer hits a two-shot pass where he's way outside the doubles alley on his backhand wing, and then Del Potro half volleys it into the open court. Federer runs, and this is an exact CBS metric, 43 and a half feet to track this next forehand passing shot. And don't you love how they show like each of the spots Federer made contact with as well? That was one of the highlights. You're like, you really needed that. You couldn't just leave a little dot there. I feel like that's what we've moved on to now. Um, but yeah, I, what you... What first strikes you about this match in Roger Federer's performance, especially through the first, you know, three and a half sets, maybe really the first two and a half sets, uh, is just how quick he was, how good he was defensively, how if you gave him any sort of forehand sitting up, which Del Potro did at the beginning, because as we've mentioned, he was nervous, uh, he just put it away or he moved forward. And yeah, the the cross court pass on the run. And you, at that moment, you just thought, uh oh, especially because he broke for 2 0, he held for 3 0, you know, 40 15, a couple of big forehands. It just looked like it was going to be another day at the office. True. But at the same time, I feel like Delpo's nerves kind of spotted Federer a set here. His feet weren't moving. He didn't have the forehand uh, or the timing on his forehand. And uh, the other tactical take that that I had after this first set is uh, Federer was moving forward really well. He got he got more short balls than he did for the rest of the match. But because Del Potro is a flat hitter, especially off his forehand wing, and it wasn't his forehand wasn't really firing exactly either. Federer was really good at approaching Del Potro's forehand, was 10 for 10 at the net at one point. Yeah, I, I thought, not that the first set was highway robbery. I think the third set for Federer was absolutely highway robbery. But, you know, you look at the serve percentages, Del Po was at 54% of his first serves. And that's never going to get the job done against Roger Federer, except for the fact that Roger Federer was at 41% of his first serves were going in. And he just, he couldn't find any rhythm. And I do think part of that was, and McEnroe points this out, which is again why he was pitching like the 7-8 range, not the 4-5. But uh, Federer was playing fast. 
he he could tell he sensed the moment maybe physically he knew what was going on with his body but he had Delpo down Delpo was nervous he couldn't find any rhythm Federer was getting to the line as quickly as possible he was moving forward as quickly as possible trying to just put the pressure on Del Potro now tactically for Del Potro he was six to ten feet behind the baseline that entire first set and yeah that to me was the another big tactical adjustment he made because coming into the match Delpo had made 82 percent of his returns in the tournament and 82 percent of your returns that's outstanding and again to see him hit two-handed backhand returns you just think to yourself like what what were we robbed of and him stepping into backhands he's perfectly comfortable playing his backhand anywhere around the court Uh, but everything was just tentative and he was making returns but just not doing anything with it and again if you gave Federer a middle forehand during this time period he was on top of it I I mean, I'm looking at a chart, the match charting from tennisabstract.com. They do the best, you know, deep dive statistical uh, looks yes. at all of these different things. You look for Federer in terms of the, the points he played that were, you know, the three one to three shot range. I mean, he was just he was so good on them. And I think he it was something like there were 203 total points. 111 of them were on Federer's serve. And he won eight or I think he won or 111 of them on his serve. Yeah. And he won 81 of them. That's a 73 percent conversion rating. He was getting plus one balls, he was moving forward to the net, and he was winning those points. Del Potro being back is is another reason that Federer had so much success approaching the net. I think Del Potro felt like he needed the extra time because that's how slow his feet were moving. That's why I think he couldn't get up there because nerves nerves can affect footwork, and I think that happened in the first set. First set, 6-3 Federer. Second set, more of the same, a stinker at love all. Del Potro is serving two unforced errors, a double fault for love 40 at 1540, another double fault for Del Potro. Yeah. I'm, no, I mean, it, it, it was shaky. Right. And to me, he was kind of, he looked kind of miserable. And I have a bit of a hot take about how he stopped looking miserable or when he stopped looking mis- miserable. Federer goes around the back after an easy hold by Del Potro, Delpo puts away the volley, um, but the ball the ball winds up in in Delpo's hand, or or no, he might take a ball out of his pocket, <laughs> and he throws the ball at Federer because it was like, how dare you almost pull off this incredible <laughs> trick shot on me? And I just think he he got out of his funk, his emotional funk, and just from that playful moment that he had with Federer. Yeah, I so a great take as always. Um, you know, you. I I think the origins of it. There was a game in that first set. I think it was the five-two uh, f- game where Delpo goes down. Love forty ends up hitting a couple of big serves and gets a couple of big plus one forehands to hold for five-three. And it was kind of like, okay, I'm surviving then. Uh, but yeah, you know, for Federer at this point in his career, he was 167 and four after winning first sets in majors. And you know, the last 16 U.S. Opens had been won by the guy who won the first set in singles. Uh, so yes, you know, certainly at that point, everything was rolling for Federer. 
But I also do think Del Potro could take some solace in the fact that he just didn't play that well in the first set, that nothing was working, and he just hadn't found his rhythm. And I know, you know, as you mentioned here in this game, uh, yeah, Federer played some some solid points, but Delpo tracks down a bad drop shot uh, before that to mm-hmm. get, you know, to have the forehand put away that Fed goes behind the back. And, you know, it, it certainly started to loosen him up. Um, and, yeah, that's why I think it's a really good take. I think you see immediately in the game after, he doesn't break. Uh, but he comes he close. awfully close. Yeah, he gets, I think, three break points. They also have, you know, their first conflict there uh, where they decide to replay the point because Delpo thought, it, so I think something came flying out of the crowd. And again, you were there, so maybe you remember, was there a cup coming out of the crowd at that time? But, you know, I, I think that's a really good take that it was, he just needed something to loosen him up to remind himself, hey, this is just a tennis match. I know it's a Grand Slam final, but yes, a, a little joking moment like that. And it's funny because things get tense between them later on. And, you know, it's easy to joke around if you're Federer when you're up a set and a break and you're like, yeah, whatever. Uh, but evidently, maybe he should not have. Yeah, better mood for Del Potro after that moment. Now, the timing on the forehand, it, it still wasn't there, especially when you when we saw what happens when he does time his forehand well later on in the match at one three, I'm just going to highlight. And in post-production, I'm going to put this moment up. I think one of the more underrated misses of the match is at one three add out break point for Federer. And he has a look at uh, a forehand that he tries to take inside in, you know, I don't have that written down. So that's no, number. so we'll I'm see. smiling so widely because I literally okay. in my notes, uh, add out inside in forehand miss for deuce parentheses capital letters could be a big miss yeah yeah spot on. that's exactly when it happened and now we'll jump ahead to five four Federer is serving for the set and man he is not making first serves still first set second set still not making first serves but it looks like he's going to go up two sets to love in your view what happened here at five four well, you know, he also had a breakpoint chance the game before, and it was he sort of missed a forehand pass in the net tape. So again, that's another blown point. And if he goes up two sets to love, this is a completely different match. But you know, for Del Potro, again, I thought he had been working the lob quite a bit as a passing shot early on in that first set. Maybe it's because Federer crowds the net so tightly. But you know, there was a moment that I think it's in that four-five game. There's a long rally. Federer goes up to thirty love, as you mentioned. There's a long rally then with a backhand mm-hmm. slice error from Delpo, uh, or from I think Fed for 30, or Delpo for thirty fifteen, uh, or maybe not. And Federer approaches with a trip, and Delpo hits the bump lob over his head. And you can see, and the commentators say it, but you can see Federer thinking to himself, do I go for the tweener here? Do I make this my iconic moment? And he doesn't do that. And, you know, he tries to do the over-the-shoulder, uh, you know, uh, lob, and it ends up going long. And I do think that was a moment when Federer sort of lost his head. When he, he or Not lost his head, that's the wrong word, but it was just sort of one of those moments where he, he thought to, you know, he let himself get caught up by the grandeur. You could tell the over-the-shoulder was rushed. He really wanted to hit a tweener, and he didn't. And that speaks to he let the pageantry get into his head. He thought to himself, hey, I've got this match. I'm on top of Del Potro, and, you know, it, it just didn't look— and because Del Potro wasn't playing well. Uh, but, again, that was another one of those little moments, much like Del Potro 
throwing the ball at the net where he sort of calmed down and you could see Delpo, you know, begging the ball, trying to push it out, just go long, don't let him make an over-the-shoulder lob on me. And, you know, from there, obviously, there is the forehand pass and there's the, uh, you know, the call that Fetter doesn't like. And, you know, I, yeah. I, I know you want to get into that, I'm sure, but, you know, that was, it, it was just a confluence of events where he let the scene get to him and then a call didn't go his way and then before before he knew it, it was five all. Yeah, so uh, thirty all is a point that that a lot of people remember. And I actually went to Twitter and asked my followers, "What do you remember for, from this match?" And uh, one of the replies was, "This forehand is what I remember from this match. Thirty all. Del Potro's on the run. He's way behind the baseline, and just absolutely demolishes this forehand. Looked wide, but chase review. It nicked the line, but Feder just." He, this was a point in his career where he did not trust Hawkeye. I'm so <laughs> glad he got over that because I, I think it's it was fairly ridiculous, but it bothered him. Yeah, no, and the thing was, it's not just that it was Hawkeye. It was that he was already upset with the line judge about the blown call earlier, in the, or the delayed challenge, or not delayed challenge, but the blown call, the replaying of the point when Delpo wasn't ready. And you know— mm-hmm. To get passed down the line once on an on-the-run forehand, you're like, all right, whatever, good for you. But to have it happen to him twice in a row happens on the 30-all point as well as the 30-40 point. Just ridiculous quality passes. You know, McEnroe says on the call, it must be the biggest shot of Del Potro's career. And that's not hyperbole. That's absolutely correct. And again, that was the first time where the crowd really erupted for Del Potro. And they thought to themselves, okay, we've got ourselves a match. Yeah, that that was it. Uh, big fist pump from Del Potro. Two forehand winners in a row. The crowd's into it, and Feder is still thinking about the point at thirty all because he's looking at the ball mark and he he really thinks that it was out. Um, what did you think? I thought it was in. Looking at the replay, and they slow it down. It's you know not as great as things are yeah. now, but it's still pretty good. That ball did look like it clipped. I don't pay. I didn't. I don't think I paid attention. I think I listened to the Hawkeye because I <laughs> <laughs> because I trust it on like Federer. But I'm glad, I'm glad to see that you're checking the Hawkeye with my Hawkeye. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, up the hawk for the eagle. Uh, and it looked like it landed in. But yeah, you know, you could just tell. And that was the moment where Del Poe found his range. From there on in, I think he was the better player. And I know he dropped the third set, and we'll talk about that in this confluence of events that lead to it. But, you know, Fetter was was wounded because Delpo holds at 15 for 6-5. And, you know, I thought it was interesting because uh, in that game on the due side twice, Delpo serves out wide to the Federer forehand. And Delpo just wasn't afraid. He wasn't, he, in his head, the way he takes balls early, Federer could unload a forehand and Delpo's just like, nice, I'm going to unload this one even harder. And he'll go plus 100 miles per hour on that side. And, you know, just slowly but surely, he began to crack Federer. Federer had to do so much scrambling through that first set in three quarters. And, you know, for him to not close out that set and not even get to a set point, that didn't happen to Roger Federer in 2009. He lost to Nadal on clay, but that was Nadal on clay. Moments like this, you know, he would always come out on top and to have a call go against him, to have, you know, these ridiculous on-the-run passing shots go against him. And, you know, again, another tidbit for 2009, this was the year he cracked a racket in Miami, right? And, you know, we're the cracked rackets guys, so, hey, great shot to him. <laughs> um, but, but he, he got flustered and that just, that never happened during that stretch of time. 
Yeah, Federer was, uh, it lingered, as I think Dick Enberg said. And at 5-6, comes away with a very tight hold, only made one first serve in that game. Then in the tie break, it's a pretty clean tie break by these two. The mini break comes at 3-all when Federer shanks a routine forehand. Credit to Del Potro, now riding the energy. He really didn't make any mistakes. And as we see with Novak Djokovic, a lot of the times in the end, in the tie break, it comes down to that unforced error. No, although he did blow that overhead at six three. Oh, right? you're it, right. It was the set point. Yeah, no, no, it, it was pass. on. Yeah, it was on Federer's serve, and I think Mary Carrillo compares it to the missed Roddick volley from Wimbledon, and you know that yeah. that's funny. But you know, for a second, you're like, oh no, he might actually get tight. But there were one, you know, in between they played two tie breaks, one in the second set, one in the fourth set. One mini break in each breaker. These guys were holding serve in the biggest moments. Delpo's, you know, his serve percentage went up throughout the match. His serve mile per hours went down. But in the biggest moments, he was able to find a big serve and a big forehand. And, you know, that's why Federer, you could tell, was a little bit upset with himself. He's like, oh, I might have blown this opportunity. Good set point by Del Potro at 6-5. Federer chipped the return cross-court. Delpo got around it and hit a really strong inside-out forehand winner. Ultimately, Del Potro just rode this wave of energy after breaking to, to save the set. His forehand started dominating, and he just had—the intensity in his feet was uh, so much better by the end of the second set. It's so funny because that inside-out forehand has become a staple of his game, right? That's the pattern you think of, especially now that he slices so many backhands and tries to get around them. But that's not the case in this match. And that's why I want to point out, you know, why that forehand was so particularly impressive. Because through the first two sets, yes, Delpo, of course, was running around his backhand to hit forehands. But primarily, he was pretty comfortable playing the backhand, trying to take that ball early or trying to take it down the line. And I think Federer gave him a lot of trouble slicing that ball and getting Del Potro dipped on that side. In sets three, four, five, Delpo starts running around that ball, starts hitting the inside-out forehand, the inside-in, setting up all the forehand patterns he wants. And that get, that gets back to the point you made that Delpo's feet start moving, that he really gets himself into this match. And yeah, he had 25 unforced errors, I think, in set number two, but they were better unforced errors in the first set. And those unforced errors become forced winners for, you know, forced errors from Federer it, later on down this match. Yeah, there's a couple of tactical points that we can come back to. Did Federer use the slice backhand enough in this match? And and just the, the strength of Del Potro's backhand at this time, I'm sure once we once we get into what happened with the injuries, we'll talk about what the difference is now. Um, in the third set, Del Potro at three all takes his first lead of the match, gets the break. Federer breaks right back. Uh, finally, Roger's first serve is starting to come on a little bit stronger. And uh, at this point, the the highlight of the third set before we get to what happens at the very end is Del Potro challenges way after um, after a game point that Federer had thought he won. And you have a, a somewhat iconic argument with the chair umpire. And it's another reply I got when I asked, what do you remember about this match? Um, someone said that argument. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I think it happens in the four-all game, or so that ninth game of the set. And, I mean, I have the quote written out here because, I, you know, it's so rare you get to catch 
Federer on camera like this. And again, this was, now he's a little edgier. He gives, you know, he'll rip on people on social media, all of these different things. But that's not the Federer of 2009. And, you know, the CBS broadcast has to cut away because they catch him on mic swearing and you know it's also very clear because i'm a body language doctor as you know i can read mouths uh read lips and know what people are saying and he dropped an f-bomb to the line judge like he says you know i don't give a, a bleep what you say uh and then he says are you effing and then he goes into the point and they cut away but you know it's because delpo got delpo got in federer's head he got under his skin, you know, he breaks, you know, he had broken him uh, four four three in that prior to that. And I know Federer broke back, I think right away four four all and then holds for five four. But the match was starting to get away from him. Delpo repeatedly had break points. You know, you look at the match stats for this match, and I think it's something like uh, Federer ends up with, I, I think it's like 25 break points, something like that. Uh, in the end, you look for Del Potro, he has 20, or, or sorry, it was 22 break points for Federer, 15 for Del Potro. But I think something like 15 of those break points came in the first two sets. And, you know, so for Federer, uh, even though he, he ends up stealing the third set, spoiler alert, uh, it to me, it did feel like he stole it from Del Potro, who just got a little nervous at the end. Totally. I, I think Del Potro was at a high level in a dogfight, and then it was almost, I don't want to call it a relapse of, of the first set because it was so momentary, but things got tense at 4-5, a net cord uh, that Fed gets at love 15. Now, Del Potro missed a high volley on the first ball that he should have made. That makes it love 30. Uh, then he gets back to 30 all Delpo. It's a forehand winner inside out, inside in uh, service winner at 1530. But from 30 all two double faults from Del Potro, it was shocking. Yeah, I mean, look, you talk about in that four all game. I don't know. If, I think he may have had a Delpo. I think he did actually have a break point. And in that game, you know, it was a ridiculous cross court forehand from Delpo, then a ridiculous down line by Delpo where he was outside the alley and just overwhelmed the Federer one hander for 30 40. Now, yes. of course, Federer ends up getting out of that game. And of course, that's when he gets chippy after getting out of that game with the line judge. Um, But you know, that love 15 point in the 5-4 game when Delpo missed that high volley, Federer lets out a come on, like an audible come on. And Roger Federer does not cheer for opponents on four stairs. That's just not how he, unless he's playing Djokovic. Uh, you know, that's just not how he is. But he did that in this match. And it's just like, again, it's so interesting because he had gotten to slam number 15 at Wimbledon. He had completed the career grand slam at the French Open that season. And yet... 2009 is a visibly frustrated Roger Federer on court, which is just was different. And I, I do think, you know, for him, he got lucky to steal that second set. You mentioned the net court. You mentioned the back-to-back -back double faults. Delpo lost the set. Federer didn't win it. I think that's fair. Do you have any theories why that why Federer was visibly frustrated in 2009, as you said? Any theories there? Uh, without so you know uh, my mom's an OB-GYN I know a little bit about what it's like to be around little kids and uh he had just had a set of daughters and so you know adjusting to not saying that it's their fault that is not what I'm implying but of course life for him gets a little more complicated and of course Nadal was peaking you know coming up on the rise and so were Murray and Djokovic and no one is more astute than Roger Federer as to the level of the competition he faces uh but yeah he was it was also windy too right they kept referencing how windy it was. And again, this is where I want Ash. to. 
Yeah. So is that just a product of ash? And again, to ask you what the wind yes. conditions were on a Monday in 2009, <laughs> that's just unreasonable. Uh, but but because the balls didn't look like they were really swirling, but there were a lot of mishits. And I just think he just wasn't happy with his serve. He wasn't happy with his, uh, you know, the calls that were going against him. He just wasn't happy. That's just how Arthur Ashe was before mm-hmm. pre-roof. Now it's now players have other complaints like it gets too hot and humid, but uh, pre-roof it's just it was this vacuum. I don't know. I don't even know who. It's not geometry. Who would know about this? Whatever it was, it was a wind <laughs> tunnel, and the wind swirled inside, and it was frustrating for for players. One thing though that I didn't realize because I was at the match mm-hmm. is that. TV did not show Del Potro at the changeover between the third and fourth set. And I had this notion that everyone knew how much emotion Del Potro showed at that changeover. And now I realize that most people have no idea. Is this about to be the crying part four? No way. Were there tears on the changeover? It it looked like there were some tears. Now, here was the moment. Here was the moment, and I know this is insane. It blew my mind. I was waiting for the moment on the broadcast when the fourth set started. I was waiting for them to say, and by the way, this is what happened at the changeover, and they did not show it. So here I am thinking that everyone knows about this, and it turns out this is a Monday Match Analysis Monday match analysis exclusive. But here's how I remember it. I mean, Del Potro has his hands buried in his face, and the cam, you know, it's up on the jumbotron at Ash. And when he just removes his hands, he's he's teary. I mean, he is distraught about how that third set ended. And I remember the reaction of the crowd was, aww. <laughs> <laughs> no, so first of all, thank you for that piece of insight. And maybe McEnroe was in there saying, hey, I'm not qualified to talk about people crying since I've never cried on a tournament match before. And it's like, well, actually, you probably have, John. Um, You know, he got salty when they showed a photo of him early on or he got like passed at the end. He was like, that's the clip you're going to show of me. And then in that third set, they end up showing a clip of shirtless John celebrating something. And so I just imagine between, you know, that between catching Federer swearing on Mike, and by the way, the exchange between McEnroe and Carrillo when they come back is just priceless. Um, but they were just like, hey, do, do we talk about the tears too? Do we just really go all in? And they were like, no, 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 no tears. Like, just, just move on. Let's get to the next thing. Let's remind, let's try and remind everyone why tennis. And it's just, it's so sad because the individual personalities of tennis, the you know, how heartfelt a loss is because it's all on you as a player. You're the one who plays the match. That's what makes the sport so enjoyable, those intimate moments you get to see uh, as a fan. And so, yeah, that's fascinating. And it also makes me wonder, is that the sort of moment two double faults and, you know, moving forward, McEnroe emphasizes that it looks like after those double faults, Delpo takes some off his serve. But he also starts to play so much more freely from the baseline. And you have to wonder in that moment, especially now knowing the emotion uh, was that when he just said, you know what? I really don't have anything to lose. I have played better than Roger Federer through these first, through these last two sets at least. And I think that's fair for him to have said, and I just let it get away from me. And 
it, it was just so interesting because, you know, yes, I think uh, Federer has some break in this set. He had some break chances, never any match points, but certainly some chances to uh, take a lead. And then, you know, Delpo ends up going up, I think, 4-3 uh, a little bit later. But, yeah, I just the Delpo you see in set four and set five. That's a guy who this gets to the whatever, you know, I'll, I'll save it, but it it's just sure. a special performance. The forehand just Fire. jumps off the screen in this fourth set. Uh, they The two exchange breaks a little bit. Uh, at, at one point, you know, when Federer gets a, gets a break back midway through the set, it's actually a moment where Federer has tons of momentum and, and tons of energy. At 4-5, Del Potro has... Del Potro serving at 4-5. I think he has his moment, another moment, where he really takes control of this match. He's in a 15-30 hole. And as you said, Alex, he had been serving his first serves, Del Potro, between 115 and 100 miles per hour, really taking off, just putting him in the box and relying on his forehand to really be his first serve, so to speak. But at 15.30, suddenly, 128 by Del Potro, service winner. 30 all, 131, an ace. And at 40.30, massive forehand winner down the line. That game, to me, was massive. See, for me, I go back to that second game of the fourth set. And, you know, Federer races out to a 15.40 lead. There's some great defense. There's just a sloppy drop shot from uh, Del Poe, a missed inside in forehand plus one ball. And, you know, his footwork went back to that level that it was in the first set. And you go down 15-40, you go down a break to Roger Federer 2-0 after being down two sets to one. That could be lights out. Uh, but from there, you know, it's a serve plus one for 30-40, a serve inside plus an inside out forehand for deuce, uh, a sloppy error from Federer for add-in, and then just this ridiculous cross-court forehand from Delpo. One of those, you know it, when I bring, you know, the idea of him stepping in and just lights out, he makes perfect content, it's a winner. Uh, contact, it's great content, but it's also perfect contact. Yes. And, you know, he holds for one all there. And then his body language picks up. His energy level picks up. His movement picks up. And, you know, he had a bunch of breakpoint opportunities throughout this set as well. He gets that break at 3-2 uh, for 4-2 uh, in that game. and Or I think he gets the break, excuse me, at, at yeah, at 2-all for 3-2. And that was a break he got at love. And that yes. was, you know, that was the first dominant game probably of the entire match on the Federer serve for Del Potro, and he just, you know, he had served his way out of some trouble the game before that as well, but that game for me, you know, that sequence there from uh, 0-1 to 3-2 Delpo, that's where the match flips, and even though Federer breaks back and extends this set to a tiebreaker, from here on in, it's all Delpo. Delpo certainly seems to have a a marked edge in neutral baseline rallies when, when they're hitting from the back, and that's a big problem because Federer is just not having a good serving day. And the, the commentators were uh, went back to the Wimbledon final against Roddick a few times where Federer served a massive amount of aces. And in this match, there were, there, was, there were portions. I don't think Federer ended with more double faults than aces, but there was a point in the fourth set where that was the case. And Federer actually started this fourth set tiebreak with a double fault. Yeah, which he had double digits, ten, I believe. Yeah, I, I think it's. I have fourteen, eleven in and on the score sheet in front okay. of me. But I no, 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 you're not supposed to correct the host. Yeah, it was ten. 
Um, I agree with you. Uh, but no, but I, so, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Okay. Cool. But yeah. And you know, for Federer in that first set, I think Delpo won something like 26% of his second serve points, something crazy like that. By the end of the match, Delpo's at 56%. I think Federer just got worn down and a point that sticks out to me, a point that he ended up winning, uh, Delpo had breakpoint chances. It was the five-all game and, you know, a couple of big forehands from uh, Delpo, a couple of big forehand returns that he started stepping into as well. It was really in this set that he started running around the backhand return, hitting more forehands, taking more chances. Uh, but he gets to a breakpoint, and it's an ad side serve that sort of hangs, and Delpo just unloads a forehand inside in return and Federer just barely gets his racket on it. Uh, and he ends up winning the point. It draws a Delpo backhand, uh, easy sitter into the net because the crowd erupts on that forehand because hearing Delpo's mm -hmm. forehand in person, seeing that forehand as it comes off of his racket is just like few other experiences in tennis and the crowd justifiably reacted to that. Uh, but you know, Delpo lost that point. The thing is, that point was very emblematic of the rest of the match, that Federer came up with some incredible scrambles. But I do think Juan Martín del Potro was the first guy who, and this is why it's so crushing that we didn't get to see him healthy for a prolonged period of time, but he just wasn't afraid of Roger Federer. He just, power for power, stroke for stroke, he's like, I can hang with you forehand-wise. A young Delpo was not intimidated to play his backhand as well. He could take returns early. Yes, early on, Federer was taking time away and getting to the net, but as the match went on, Delpo asserted himself closer and closer to the baseline. And why that points so, uh, so cl clearly to me uh, is an example of how this match went is Federer just wore down. Yeah, in that instance, he got his racket on that, but to have to chase down Del Potro forehands for four hours, that's just, you know, there's a reason, you know, only you know, that the Murray match that Del Potro plays in the Olympic finals, that, you know, it was a four-hour, just three-and-a-half physical just slaughter. And it takes just this immense physical effort to overcome Juan Martin Del Potro when he's playing his best tennis. And on this day, he was playing his best tennis. He was at starting, you know, and this is this is arguable, but you know, probably starting at the at, once he saved that second set, once he broke Roger Federer from there on, uh, it was a it was an incredible level, and that that forehand was so much to handle, and the backhand is so solid, maybe even more consistent than his forehand. Uh, fourth set tiebreak ends seven four. It finishes, so it starts with a Federer double fault. It ends with a unforced error by Federer at 6-4. Mm -hmm. um, Again, only one mini break of serve. And mm -hmm. we had more drama between Federer, Delpo, and the line umpire, that seventh point where I think right. Federer uh, thought the serve was out, but Delpo plays. It hits the plus one winner. Uh, he says, hey, I heard someone in the crowd yell out. And you really did hear someone in the crowd yell out. And again, I, if you have more analysis for me, was it actually out? Was it go Delpo? What was he yelling? But uh, it was. It, what was crazy is after that, to you know, because it was the wrong call, but to allow a challenge just that, that far later, this gets back to frustrated Fed. The chair umpire a little bit lost control of this match. No, no, I disagree. I think you gotta Ooh. let him challenge. I think you have to let him challenge because the original, you know, his El Potro's original reaction was, or excuse me, Federer's original reaction was, wait, it was called out, right? And 
the chair umpire had to ask the lines judge, did you call it out? The lines judge said, no, it wasn't me. It was someone from the crowd. So Federer goes, come on, uh, you, you can't let that happen. I, you know, you gotta, you gotta call something there. And he goes, no, I can't call anything. Federer says, well, can I challenge? I don't think the umpire can say, no, it's too late. I mean, come on. So, you know what okay. I mean? yeah, it was equal, uh, interpretation of the law everyone law was applied equally to both players and so yeah that's a fair point but i mean it was it was it was way late 30 seconds late at least and you know again it, there is karma in this world there is justice because the point ends with a federal missed backhand down the line delpo goes up five two holds that point um but I, just to for it to be a fourth set breaker, you know, you kind of have to put your foot down. And then wh where I really say it gets out of control is because he lets him challenge, the serve is out, but they play a let. And it's just like, what's going on? And so, again, maybe I actually think the let was, in my mind, the most justified part of the call because at the end he was like, you know what? This has been 45 seconds of chaos. Let's just do it again. Um, but had he not called the let and Delpo has to hit a second serve there, particularly with the double fault yips we saw from him earlier, that's another one of those what-ifs from this match. That's a good point. I, I agree with uh, both calls. I like the let, and I like allowing Federer to challenge, um, and that, that ball was out. Let's go to the fifth set, and, you know, it, it it wasn't very close, so there's not really things to go really deep into and dissect, but I'll say at love one, Federer, um, or right now, um, yeah, Federer serving. He misses a backhand slice into the tape. Two big second serves returns by Del Potro, and it just seemed like Federer was a little bit stubborn, not afraid of Del Potro's forehand. Maybe he should have been afraid of Del Potro's forehand. At 30-40, what do we see again? Federer hits an approach shot right into Del Potro's forehand and running cross-court pass. At that point in the match, it was like it was automatic. Yeah, again, I think what you just said uh, sort of accentuates my point perfectly, not to make it about me, but come on, Gail, you know who it's about. <laughs> um, but uh, Delpo was not afraid of the Federer forehand. And again, just mentally, Federer's like, really? You want to play to my forehand? Let's do it. And then Federer, try, you know, he's like, I'm not going to be afraid of your forehand, Juan Martin. And you're right. He should have been. Now, you asked a question earlier, did Federer slice enough? And I think this is where we should get into that because especially sets four and five, why Federer, I think, turned away from the slice is because Delpo got his feet moving. Because instead of playing that ball as a low backhand or an uncomfortable backhand, he would get around it and hit a forehand. And again, nowadays, that inside-out, inside-in forehand combo is the Juan Martin-Delpotro staple. Uh, but back then, he still did play around with the backhand more, and you talked about it his forehand in this uh in this match it, it just stands out when he starts really stepping into it when he starts being aggressive on that side looking for opportunities to play the forehand that's why he started to take control of the match and I do think for Federer it's a combination of okay well if I slice this backhand I'm running like he's going inside in or he's hitting something ridiculous inside out and then I you know it's part b of that as well as just you know I this gets back to I think mentally Juan Martin Del Potro, even beyond what he did physically, I think he won this match mentally, which is just crazy to say. I would critique Federer in not slicing enough because and and the what you're saying is I think a game that Federer has to play with a lot of different players. If he's playing 
Uh, even Novak Djokovic, when Federer slices his backhand cross court, he does not want Djokovic, as good as his backhand is, he does not want Djokovic to be hitting inside out forehands. He wants to get it to, to, to Novak's backhand. And the same would be true with Del Potro. So you have to mix it up. You have to make sure it's good. But to get Del Potro to move inside the baseline uh, where he's just not quite as comfortable hitting low backhands. I just don't think that Federer was putting Del Potro in that uncomfortable position. And instead, they were they were slugging it out like two heavyweight boxers trading right hooks. And Federer is going to lose that game against Del Potro. It's something I think he figured out later in his career. But at the same time, world number one, the peak of Federer's dominance, it's coming to an end, but he's still there. Maybe a little bit of an arrogance with his tactics. So I'm going to push you on this. I'm gr- I'm glad we're this is where it's going to have a fun debate because you talked about the, the slice getting Del Potro closer to the line and getting him, uh, you know, in uncomfortable positions. I disagree. I think why Del Potro had success was because he got closer to the baseline because he made it a slugfest. And, you know, to say Roger Federer is going to lose a slugfest against anyone in tennis history, you know, 99.9% of the time you're going to take Roger Federer to win a match between two heavy hitters, between two guys who use precision and aggression to win their game because you could argue he's the best ever do it on the men's side in terms of his aggression, in terms of the way he's able to move forward and take balls early. And that, you know, that Delpo was able to beat him at his own game. Like To me, you're right. There was a little bit of arrogance. I completely agree with that point because Federer stuck to, no, I'm going to keep hitting forehands big. I'm going to keep trying to find that inside in myself. And that's where we saw a lot of shank uh, forehands from Federer in this match. But, you know, I, I do think, you know, to say Del, it, it speaks to the level of performance from Del Potro that he beat Federer, this Roger Federer, Roger Federer, who was what, something like 27 at the time, maybe 28, uh, Roger Federer at this point, 28, to beat him at his own game. It was incredible because if I, you know, looking back on the match, if I say to you, what were the sequence, uh, you know, the most frequent sequence of points that each guy was winning? For Delpo, you'd say he hit a couple of blistering forehands, one of which eventually Roger just couldn't return. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, you'd say for Roger, well, he made a couple of responses to blistering forehands from Del Potro, got him stretched to the outer thirds, changed direction, and sort of survived and, and, grind, and was able to grind Del Potro down. Federer doesn't win matches as a—I mean, he can win matches as a grinder, but you just so rarely hear that. And I just think he had to play big. He had to play aggressive because he wasn't finding success grinding Del Potro down. And that's why I think he abandoned the slice backhand a little bit because it just wasn't working for him. Yeah, that's fair. I think it I think it plays a big role in, in their matchup eventually, I think. Sure. When, and, and, you know, the backhand got a lot weaker for Del Potro, but I think Federer— uh, in, enjoys bringing a tall six foot six big hitter enjoys bringing them not inside the court where, you know, they're on top of the baseline because Del Potro is perfectly comfortable there. I'm saying bring him into no man's land with that short yeah. chip. Like he did to Djokovic at, at Wimbledon, for example, when he almost got the best of him in 2019, Djokovic hates having to go inside the court to hit a low backhand. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think if he, utilized that shot a little bit better. I that would be uh, one of my main critiques. But at the end of the day, uh, one of the one of the major things, and let's just skip ahead and say Del Potro 
saves a break point at two love 30 40. I think one of the more underrated shots of the match was a nice heavy cross court backhand by Del Potro that drew an error. Um, and after that, it was kind of smooth sailing, easy holds for Del Potro, loose game at two five by Federer um, at the end there gave Del Potro uh, the six two fifth set victory and, uh, and the championship. Um, and in my description of that, I forgot where I was going. So I don't know if you had any major, uh, <laughs> any major takeaways in the fifth set. I'm sure I'll remember where I was going in a yeah. moment. No, uh, for me, the fifth set was all Del Potro. It was just yeah. fascinating to see him have, you know, because Roger beat him in five sets, as you mentioned at the top of this, uh, in, in the French Open semifinals. And Roger beat Andy Roddick in a dramatic five-set thriller at Wimbledon. And this gets why, again, to see Roger Federer worn down, it was a testament to Juan Martin Del Potro. And I actually think Del Potro won this match twice. And here's my take for you. Here's what I mean. First championship point. Del Potro hits a cross-court forehand. That was going to be a winner. You could see it on Federer's face. You could see by looking at his footwork. And I paused it at the time to see you know, what it looked like when it came off the racket. And it clips the net tape. And it gives Federer a second chance. And Federer had some ridiculous pickups during that point as well. But that ball doesn't hit the net tape. You know, Delpo wins the match four, five, six points earlier. I do also think, though, given the serving difficulties Del Potro was having, not difficulties, but the tentativeness he was displaying on serve, so much better for him to get to break to win the tournament. And I think McEnroe points that out as well than for him to have to hold. Um, but again, physically, because this gets into the what if category. He's six foot five, six foot six, whatever it is. They say he's the tallest man to ever win a Grand Slam. And honestly, I would, the content I'm looking for is give me Goran Ivanisevic, Del Potro, and Chilich all standing side by side. <laughs> I want to know who's actually taller between the three of them. Uh, but if this was the physical specimen we got to see from Del Potro, a guy who could grind a little bit, you know, playing six feet behind the baseline because of his reach, his length, he could get to a couple of extra balls. The fact that you can just tell, and he still runs around the forehand well, but when he wanted to run around the forehand and snap a ball off, he could just do it significantly easier uh, when he was 20 years old, as so many of us can, obviously. But that, that to me is, when I think about this fifth set, all I started to think about is what if, because at no point in this match, and I, the, the difference between this and Agassi Rafter, I thought I knew Rafter was going to win the whole time, but I wasn't 100% sure. This one I knew for sure that Delpo was going to win. But even, I really tried to watch this match and think to myself, okay, is there any point where I thought Roger Federer's going to run away with this match where he's just playing significantly better? And had he broken for 2-0 in the second set, I would have thought that. I would have thought, okay, he's going to run away with this one. But given that he served in the 40s, first serve percentage-wise, in the first set, he wasn't playing well. Del Potro was playing tight. The entire match was on Del Potro's racket, in my opinion. And, you know, I asked you when we did the Raptor Agassi match, did the right player win the match? And in that one, I didn't think so. I really thought Agassi was the better player throughout the duration. In this one, you know, as great as Roger Federer was, and he still was really good in this match. Like, again, the idea that one of the other takeaways is to say Roger Federer is a better tennis player now than he was in 2009. I'm sorry. You're just wrong. Like you're just physically incorrect. The scrambling yep. he does, he was willing to play defense against Del Potro. He would not be willing to do that now. Um, but 
it, it, it all I could think about watching this fifth set is what if just what if Delpo had stayed healthy because then it would be would it even be a big four you know big five no I just think so many of the I think he's a guy who would have won multiple Grand Slam titles if healthy I look at the match a little bit differently because I think that Federer probably should have been up you know like six two six two in a hurry here um, and it didn't happen because Federer couldn't make a first serve um, and couldn't convert on a break point. So uh, I think there was a point in the match where it flipped and Del Potro stole the show, and there's not all that much Federer can do besides the fact that he continued to have an atrocious serving day. I don't think Federer really had his A game. But other than that, the takeaway was Del Potro's baseline game completely took over. Um, but that's the technicality I'll get you on is I think if Federer was sharper in the beginning, it would have been two sets to love and it, Del Potro wouldn't have even know uh, what hit him. You do have to wonder, did, did he wear, did Roger Federer wear down? Because the emotion of winning the French Open, the emotion of the five set matching at Wimbledon, surpassing Boom. Pete Sampras. And, you know, yeah, he won Cincy that year, but to go to try and pass Bill Tilden's record again, just another record, did that start to wear on him? And, you know, a lot of times during the match, they flipped to Mirka. And Mirka just looks so nervous throughout the duration of this match. And, you know, you can only, again, body language, Dr. Alex Gruskin checking in here. Um, but you could just tell there was a tentativeness and just, you know, Roger Federer, I think 2009, he still finishes the season as the number one ranked player in the world. He goes on to make the semifinals of the year-end finals. Uh, you know, overall, uh, he seven titles in 15 events. But of all of the seasons he ends as the world number one, this is probably the least successful, which again, still crazy successful, but the least successful of the group. And I think this match signaled the era of Roger Federer's dominance, not the era of Roger Federer, because obviously he is a part of the big three, but the era of it being just him, of him just being a cut above everyone else. That ends, that mystique ends at this match. This is the end point of that narrative arc. A great transition, bingo, because I was going to go here. There is a tendency for tennis players. We saw it happen to Novak Djokovic. We saw it happen to Andy Murray. When you reach career milestones, when you do it, when you reach that pinnacle, there's normally a hangover. And this match might have been a slight Roger Federer hangover because you look at how he reacted to losing the final against Nadal in the Australian Open, literally crying. Man, was there just a fraction of lacking in desperation from Federer in this match. I don't think that he was really problem-solving out there. And then I think in the fifth set, something was missing about the, you know, it's not like he wasn't fighting, he, but he didn't seem like like the sky was falling and he had to do whatever he could to possibly figure out a way back into this. He looked a little bit resigned. And I just wonder if emotionally this is an outlier because... He had accomplished so much in the last couple months. Man, this happens to everyone. The motivation takes a little bit of a dip when that happens. Yeah, so what's like everything else he does, of course, his hangovers are just better than everyone else's because right. he goes on in 2010, as you mentioned, and wins uh, that Grand Slam uh, at the Australian Open to start out the season. But 
I think unequivocally the answer has to be yes. I mean, you know, for him to, he goes finals, then wins the Australian Open, but then quarterfinals for the first time since the 2004 French Open at the 2010 French Open. Um, yeah, that, I mean, think about how many ter- matches he had played over the past, you know, seven years prior to that 2010 season and leading up to this U.S. Open. I mean, he's playing about 80-plus, 90-plus matches over the course of, uh, you know, six, seven seasons. He's making deep runs at all of these events as well. It's not just one in, one out. It's He's playing deep, and it, the emotional wear down that takes. And, of course, you know, coming back from that 08 Wimbledon loss and to just the emotion of the 09 season— uh, yeah, I, I mean, we talked about it so at length earlier, but again, for him also to have to play back to back, that it was a Monday match. What do you, because he runs out of juice in the fifth set. I think that's something you have to mention there. Um, but is it an emotional wear down? Is it a physical wear down? Is it a combination of the two? I do think so, but I do, you know, you go back to the pre-match interview. He was cocky coming into this one. You go to the fact that you could tell he thought in his head, I'm hitting a tweener on this ball that when Delpo hits the bump lob over him in set number two, and he goes over the shoulder, he let the moment get to him. He didn't adjust his first serve until midway through the third set, really not until he went down a break, even in that third set. And because he was stubborn because he was like, you know what? No, this has been working for me since the French open. This is, this is what works. Del Potro can't beat me. And he just didn't adjust. And, you know, Roger Federer adjusts. That's his game plan. That's his MO. You know, no one outthinks Roger Federer on a court. And it's not that he, you know, Del Potro outthought him. Del Potro just wore him down. I don't think Federer really changed anything here, uh, mm-hmm. t- to be honest. And the the first serve percentage, just so we can put a number on it, for the match was 50%. Um, just to get, just to kind of support also what you've been saying about this maybe being the end of the era of Roger Federer's complete domination. Uh, after the Australian Open in 2010, that marked his 18th major final in 19 majors. That is a mind-blowing, mind-blowing stat. Last question on Federer, then we'll go to Del Potro. He's only made the final Federer once in the next nine U.S. Opens. Keep in mind, he, coming into this match, had won five in a row. I will throw in the caveat that he missed the the entire tournament in 2016. What can you attribute that to? Just the the sudden change in Federer's success in New York. Well, 2010, two match points blown against Djokovic. 2011, two match points blown against Djokovic. The aura of invincibility for him at this event snapped at the 09 at the 09 final and I I do think you know, because he lost to Del Pote in the 09 final because he didn't win that one, the fact that he blew match points against Djokovic in back-to-back U.S. Open semifinals gets just thrown out the window as a factoid. No one even thinks about that anymore because, you know, when you think about blown opportunities for Federer, you obviously talk about Wimbledon uh, this past year, and then you talk about, oh, that Del Pote match when he was up, a, you know, two sets to one, and he should have had that one. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that's—it gets overshadowed. Uh, but— you also have to keep in mind, and you know we don't have to do this right now, but you know Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, uh, Stan Wawrinka, even Marin Cilic, you know they all 
where oh, I guess take Chilich out of that group, but he had to compete with four guys who were all five years or more younger than him, all entering their primes. Uh, again, Novak Djokovic, in my opinion, is the best hardcore player, certainly of the 21st century, if not in tennis history. And, you know, I'm not going to, Don Budge was really good. And so was Pacho Gonzalez. But, you know, <laughs> what? I, again, for me, it's Novak Djokovic yep. is the guy to beat. And I think that that's why you look back at, you know, he made the final in 2015, but he lost to Djokovic in four sets. I think Djokovic was just the better player in that match. You know, I, I do think 09 was the last chance Fed had to win a U.S. Open. And he came up short. And after that, as as I've mentioned, the aura of invincibility was gone. 2010 is a really good Nadal season. And, you know, I think Nadal goes on to win uh, the French Open. He ends up winning uh, Wimbledon as well. And then he wins uh, the U.S. Open after he comes back from injury. And then it's Djokovic time, 2011 to 2015. The guy is just too good. So it's just... It, I don't think it's anything for Roger Federer. I don't think, you know, his play did drop off, but it's not his fault that simultaneously two of the other greatest players in tennis history and, you know, three of maybe the 10 best in tennis history happen to be playing alongside of him just after his prime. Yeah, I agree with you. A little bit of, of bad luck and, and Djokovic getting a lot better in the early 2010s. Uh, I would also add that the court got a lot slower there was a point in time where the U.S. That's Open true. was was the fast hardcore slam, and the Australian Open was slower. That's completely reversed now, uh, with the U.S. Open playing quite slow. And I also think that Federer has not been very healthy heading into the U.S. Open. Really, year after year after year, there's something bothering him. By the time he gets to New York, switching over. Um, yeah, no, for the record, I just want to say that last thing. That's a perfect point as well. He's just yeah. not as healthy year in, year out as he once was. I right. very much agree with that. So Del Potro, when he wins this tournament, is uh, the only major winner outside of the big four in a span of 35. So there was this sense that, okay, you know, here's the breakthrough. This is the guy. It didn't happen. In 2020, he got, he got to a career number four, uh, got to um, – well, I'll save that. Got to number four in 2010. Injured his right wrist that year. Keep in mind, every injury I'm about to rattle off is a major injury where he missed extended periods of time. We're I'm about to like, cry. This is going to be brutal. I know. So here I go. Again, every injury, it's like six months to a year and a half. Big time injuries. Right wrist in 2010. Left wrist in 2014. He had just gotten a number four in the world again. Huge layoff after this left injury, uh, left wrist injury. Comes back, injures his knee in 2018. Now he comes back in 2019 at the at uh, Queens. This is the most gruesome of the bit. We all saw it happen. He fractures his kneecap in 2019. So uh, four major injuries where he's going right wrist, left wrist, and then I don't know if it was two different knees. I think it might have been the same knee. Uh, but regardless. You know, Del Potro, every time he worked his way back, and he did, even with a slice backhand, he got to number three in the world, essentially, which still blows my mind. An incredible accomplishment. Got back to the U.S. Open final in 2018, where uh, he lost to Novak Djokovic. Uh, but the the injuries just stopped him from really reaching the rhythm and and where where he could, what he could have been never really came to fruition. Yeah, uh, and I think, again, this sort of goes back to 
where we were at in 2009. And it was the first year, I think, since 03 that someone not named Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal had won the most tournaments. It was Murray who won six that year. Djokovic had made 10 different finals. And yes, Federer ended the year number one, but that gap was a lot closer than it was expected to be. Guys like, you know, Djokovic, uh, uh, Murray, uh, Del Potro had all closed the gap a little bit by the end of the year. Nadal, of course, still in there as well. And, you know, given the ages of Federer and Del Potro, uh, Nadal, Del Potro, Djokovic, Murray, they were all 20 to 23 at the time. Even Roddick was still in his late 20s. But with Songa having just made a slam final, with Chilich upsetting Murray to make the quarterfinals here, there was this nucleus of young players. And it was just a matter of who do we think is going to break through first. And again, Djokovic did it in 08. But then there was a gap until he wins his next title. When does that come? 2011 Australian Open, I think, is when, or maybe, two, yeah, 2011 Australian Open is when he wins his second Grand Slam title. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for a while there, you know, it was Djokovic and Del Potro who were the guys with slams. No slams for Murray. He had made finals, but he hadn't won. But, you know, no, no slams, no slam finals for a guy like Marin Cilic. The one final for Sanga, but he, you know, w- didn't make a breakthrough like that again. And so you started to think just with the big match chops of Juan Martin Del Potro, who, as you mentioned, after this result, uh, you know, I think he went on to what make the final at the year-end tour events. And uh, for him, that, that was another big breakthrough. And I think he ended up beating in that event, Federer, as you mentioned, Federer again. He beat Dasko 7-6 in the third to move on. He beat Soderling 7-6 in the third to even get to the finals. It felt like at the end of 2009 that we saw a guy who was going to be in the upper echelon of tennis. And, you know, I like to joke around that, oh, how many slam titles would Federer really have if Joaquin Johansson would have just stayed healthy? But you really do wonder because it, it's Delpo. You know, the, here's the group of guys who— if they're playing their best tennis, they can just straight up beat a member. And I'm, I'm going to say it painfully, the big three. You know, if Murray plays his best, he can just beat them. If Stan plays his best, he can just beat them. And if Del Potro plays his best, as we saw him again, the the Olympics 2016, his run to the silver medal was one of the most inspirational uh, runs that I can remember in my tennis life. Yep. And Djokovic beat- wanted that so badly. Exactly, and he beat both Nadal and Djokovic in that match, just to or in that tournament, just to get to the finals. And that's not even a healthy Delpo, but that just shows his you know power of will. And you know, especially after this, because you you watch a Delpo match, and he does seem fearless at this point of his career, right? No stage is too big, and you wonder how much of that dates back to the confidence he gained after winning this final against Roger Federer, and just the amount of slams he could have won. I think, you know, not to equate what happened between the two at all, but, you know, probably on the women's side, the biggest what if in tennis history is what happens if, you know, tragedy doesn't strike Monica Seles, that she doesn't get stabbed in 1993. She was, what, 20, 21 years old at the time. She had won eight majors already. Uh, would she have been able to rival Steffi Graf? How would both of their slam counts be adjusted subsequently? No I think the biggest what if, certainly in modern tennis memory, and again, I don't remember the players who got injured in the 80s, but it has to be Juan Martin Del Potro because we actually saw him win a slam at the age of 20, and it wasn't just a one-shot wonder. He made the finals uh, in the year-end finals. He had made multiple quarterfinals at the Masters level in the run-up to the event. 
and just what would have happened had he stayed healthy, been able to hit that two-handed backhand, been able to move like he did, as rangy as he was, and you know the way the courts have slowed down, just the opportunities he would have had to just unload on inside-out, inside-in, forehand combos. His game ages well because it's very simple. You know, the things he's trying to execute, yeah, the footwork behind getting around an inside-out, inside-in forehand is tough, but he, he knows exactly how he wants to execute. It's very replicable. Uh, but it, it's just crushing because obviously, you know, we didn't get to see that. And so, you know, it, it really, you know, the where he factors in is if I asked you, would you rather have the career of Juan Martin Del Potro or David Ferrer? What would you pick? Ferrer. Yeah, because of the longevity, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, getting injured is, if I'm answering that question, obvious, um, honestly, and I bet a lot of people when they hear that will say, oh, Del Potro. Mm-hmm. But... Man, you want to get injured because it's not fun. Yeah, exactly. You want to go over countless. You know, how many times have you seen the Instagram video of him doing therapy? And, it's terrible. You know, it's it's yeah, it's it's just so sad. And so yeah. I agree with you. I would give me the longevity of David Ferrer, who for twelve years in a row was just a staple. He's playing seventeen plus events. You're going to see him do really well on the clay. He's going to do really solid elsewhere. And no, he doesn't have the upside of a Juan Martin Del Potro, but yeah, it's just, it, you can't, the first thing, even before the 9 Open, when you talk about Del Potro, is injuries, and that's just so yep. devastating. It is. Uh, I mean, he he had it um, that, you know, and, and I agree with you with the group of the group of players that you put in there, Stan Wawrinka. I think Del Potro has proven to be a little bit more consistent than Stan uh, when he's healthy. Um, I really do like to compare him, what if, uh, to Andy Murray, because I, I really do think that they could have been similar. And I think it, there could have been a semblance of a big five. And I don't think Del Potro had would have been Djokovic, Nadal or Federer. But I really do think he could have been Andy Murray. So uh, it's interesting you say that because one last factoid for you in terms of the head-to-heads for Del Potro at this point in his career. You talked about he was 0-6 versus Federer coming into this matchup. Obviously, he beats him there. He beats him at the World Tour Finals. Uh-huh. Gets a couple of wins under his resume. He was three and four, I believe, against Nadal at this point of his career. He had lost the first four encounters, but as you mentioned, had won the last three. It is interesting, though, because against Djokovic, he was 0 and 3 uh, through 2009, and against Murray, he was 1 and 5 through 2009. So it's an interesting comparison because you're, in terms of the upside, yes. Juan Martin Del Potro at his best, although 2016 Olympics aside, where my boy Murray took him, uh, he could certainly, you know, three, four majors, that was very much within the realm of possibility for a healthy Del Potro. But I think the biggest thing is just the hard court impact, right? How good he clearly would have been on a hard court especially, you know, the fact that he can still win titles now, and I do think is a little bit of a testament to the fact that conditions have slowed down. But imagine him with his forehand, his athletic ability that served, that got better and better and better. Uh, and, and it still struggles percentage-wise, but when it's clicking, it's just so good. Uh, on a slow, hard court, healthy nowadays. I mean, if I said he would have won six Grand Slams, is that too high for you? Yes, because of Andy Murray. I mean, no, he takes him from Djokovic. Don't take him from Murray. Take him from no, Djokovic. no, no, no. What I'm saying is, if you tell me that Del Potro is going to win six slams, the reason I'm like, nah, can't see that, Alex, is because 
how did Andy Murray win only three? Oh, good. Okay, that's a good spin. I like that a right? lot. Yeah, yeah, that's very fair. I mean, again, it's because Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal are all ridiculous. And just... yeah, and I mean, who do you take? Delpo versus Rafter. Give me Delpo 30 times out of 30. And obviously, with the technology, blah, 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 I get it. Uh, but just as a talent, Juan Martin Del Potro was special. That was my takeaway from this match as a whole. He's working on a comeback. Uh, both these players right now on the on the mend. Federer recovering from his knee surgery and uh, Del Potro uh, recovering from his knee injury. So um, sadly, sadly poetic, but uh, th- that's where we are right now. Anyway, Alex, this has been so much fun. Always tons of laughs uh, when we're going man. back and forth, and I, I really do appreciate that. Let me, let me throw one more factoid at you. What I, okay. My biggest takeaway, and again, this is why Mary Carrillo deserved to just... It should have been maybe just her and McEnroe in the booth, although Dick Enberg was so great. Um, but Mary Carrillo, at one point, they're showing Jack Nicholas, and then they show Jack Nicholson, and Carrillo just name-drops. She goes, you know, I was actually at Jack Nicholas's yes. house, and he has three grass courts there. And I was like, how is this not the thing we're talking about? Like, can I get a <laughs> video package for the three grass courts in his backyard? Can I watch Jack Nicholas play? And at first I thought they meant Jack Nicholson. And I was like, no way Nicholson has it. But then I went back and I was like, oh, they said Nicholas. Right. And that was just, it was a good piece of content. You know, Gwen Stefani was in the house. Uh, it, it was a high level of tennis, swirling winds. It was it was delightful. I, I again, I, yeah, it, I got to get out there someday because it does seem like it. And that, again, that we got the tidbit of what Del Potro looked like after set three. As always, it is a pleasure to work with you because uh, those are the tidbits uh, that I know your fans love. And it's why I always enjoy getting together to do something like this. I appreciate that. Let's just remind, uh, remind those watching where we can find your content. Uh, go to crackrackets.com. You can find it on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. We're on a YouTube subscriber binge. Uh, so if you could do that, I know super producer Daniel Westoff, it would do numbers for his health. Uh, the podcast, Great Shot Podcast, the Mini Break Podcast, the Cracked Interviews Podcast, all available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, but more importantly, uh, you know, huge shout out to you, Gil, because, you know, not only are, did we do this match, you came on our show uh, to do something similar. Like, as we mentioned for Rafter and Agassi and, you know, it was a hit. So I want to thank you for, you know, extending the favor and allowing me to come on your show because I'm a big fan. Uh, but more importantly, as you mentioned, it's just always a blast. So I, did that answer the question? Did I, that, I really that, go to that yeah, Monday match? I'm blushing now. <laughs> I was going to say, it's a Monday, match anal- Monday match analysis is what should be the first thing you scroll into YouTube. But if you've got time for something else, throw in the crack rackets in there as well. Oh, come on. Uh, look there's enough there's enough uh, space for 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 all of us Uh, but yeah really glad and uh, let's do this again stay safe stay healthy what I've been telling everyone who's been coming on to do this with me uh, I hope that we can talk about more recent tennis in the near future absolutely my friend I look forward to doing this again sometime soon our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. 
Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcast. Yes.